Hello, everyone. This is your host, Manoj Tandon. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. And today we are honored to have Marius Poskus join us. Uh, those of you who don't know him, absolutely check him out on the web. He is a cybersecurity professional with 10 years of experience. And he's done quite a bit of work in the area, ranging everything from penetration testing to cloud security. He's been uh, a public speaker in the field. He is a architect. He has attained some of the highest credentials that are available in our industry uh, and comes with, packed, loaded with a bunch of practical advice, which we're going to try to extract out of him here today in, the, in this show. Uh, so we're honored to have you here. Marius, thank you so much for coming on the show. Brilliant. Thank you for having me. So, you know, what, one thing that was interesting, I understand there was a time when you were in physical security. Yeah, How did you yeah, make that yeah. jump I, uh, from physical to cyber? Um, it, was, it was obviously, it, it's a big, you know, learning curve, but I was always into tech. So obviously, you know, I spent a lot of time post sort of university and during university doing physical security because that was an easy way to get part-time work. And then it was natural progression into full-time work. But as as I was sort of developing and, and, and I saw limitations in terms of progression and growth, and I was always keen individual to learn and um, study. So it's kind of a natural curve. I spent a lot of time doing sort of self-development, started, you know, on certifications, starting kind of embedding myself in a community. I think one place where I really sort of transcended where I was going to was the community itself, because there were so many people who were eager to help and guide me through my journey. And, you know, I'm always, I'm doing the same now. I'm doing a lot of mentoring. Uh, I'm running sort of a, there's a capstone program that we do here for career changers people. So I, I run the mentoring classes there. So I always say to people, you know, there's so many people help me in the journey and I'm always, uh, I'm helping a lot of people now into their journey, but all that, all, all I'm asking from them is just to pay it forward and then help the next generation to break into cybersecurity. Uh, well that's very kind and noble of you to do. And uh, I know uh, our industry could use a lot more people. And one of the strengths in our industry is the diversity of background that people come with into the cybersecurity place. It, it lends itself to many different thoughts uh, that might not be available if everybody just came from a computer science background, if you will. Right. So yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, so uh, appreciative that you're helping uh, people uh, come in. Was it an easy jump for you or was there a bit of a struggle in the career change? Um, it was it was kind of two ways. It was it's difficult and easy in some way because security and concepts and thinking from physical security transcends into cybersecurity. Obviously, it's, it's a lot more technical. So, you know, I think as most of the people, we I was struggling with, you know, imposter syndrome and, and you know, taking that leap because it uh, when you start looking at first, cybersecurity seems like a, a, it's a massive field because there is, as we discussed, there is blue teaming, penetration testing, cloud security, and it feels like you have to know everything to be successful, but it, it doesn't. You, you start somewhere, and especially, I think, the journey in is very hard, but once you get in, everything becomes more clearer once you start understanding the concepts and how uh, how we operate as individuals. And as I say, wherever I've worked, there's always been a, a supporting sort of cast around you or people that always are happy to share their knowledge and their experience. 
and you know and communicate and learn from them and, and grow yeah so Marius, you know, one of, uh, you know, we have a lot of very technical people that come on to this uh, as our audience. And we also have uh, not technical people who listen and, and just hearing what you just said, there is a, um, an issue often the the tech talk overwhelms the non-techie in cybersecurity and they don't understand the big picture. And it's very hard for, for them to, if you will, connect the dots and build the picture, if you will. So it would be great, you know, given what you just said to, you know, help, let's, let's connect those dots and, and let's start with some foundations and then we'll, we can dive into details here, but foundationally where, why, you know, you cannot pick up a paper or go online and not find some material breach that has occurred every day. It's an everyday occurrence. Something has happened. Why do these things continue to happen? Are we getting something wrong? And if so, what is it that we're getting wrong? I think there's a, from my experience and talking for various individuals, there's a, there is a, there's a few tendencies that I continue to keep seeing and, and they keep happening okay. is most of the time, organizations that has low level of maturity, they get buy-in into, shall we say, vendor jargon, and they're trying to buy a, a, a new shiny blinker 30,000 that's going to solve all their breaches, yep. which, which everybody knows that's not the way. Secondly, some organizations might view cybersecurity as not important enough or a cost center or they view themselves as an organization that they don't have data that's important enough to be protected because they think, oh, it's never going to happen to us. And that's, a, that's, again, that's another probably learning curve where organizations need to invest and think about. Secondly, I still keep coming across people and security professionals to truly understand risk and how to, you know, quantify the risk, how to properly, you know, get qualitative analysis and quantitative analysis of understanding risk. But the key point is here as well. It's not only understanding the risk because normally people, sometimes security professionals forget. We are, we don't, we don't never own the risk. We are a consultative function for the business of we, we raise the risks, we highlight the risks, and then business has ultimately decision of whether we're going to mitigate the risk or not. But how yeah. to create a, a compelling enough narrative to highlight serious and material risks, that's another skill that sometimes when you climb the leadership ladder, you need to you know, cultivate and learn, be able to create that narrative, create stories that you know, creates an impact to the board members or whether it's C-suite. You know, sometimes I think people forget to, that you need to invest time. When you go into a new position, I think as a CISO or any security leader, you need to understand the personas on the board and how do they like consuming the information. That's the key point. How you how they like consuming the information and how you're gonna relay that information to them. Also, I think sometimes we of, we often see it's broken reporting models. If a CISO or security leader reports to the CIO, there's always a competing sort of um, priorities. Their priority is platform uptime. Your priority is security. So sometimes it does never go past CIO. If you report to the CTO, 
same thing. Development always wins, so security always gets left behind. So you need to build a culture. You need to, you know, speak to enough people that you get you get heard and you get understood where you're coming from. You know, and I always, I always been sort of a proponent. I, I'm no longer talking, you know, scaremongering and tactics or highlighting the material breaches. It's about, you know, creating a narrative that people understand where you're coming from. You know, security is, is an often viewed as cost center. So how we can tell the leadership and the board that, you know, all of my risk mitigations is not necessarily a cost center. It's how do we save money for the business? How do we keep the business out of the headlines? How do we potentially reduce their reputational damage and, and regulatory environment to save them from fines? So that's that's the key points I see where organizations are still failing. Yeah, um, well, you have uh, said quite a bit there, quite saliently in the last several minutes. Uh, and you're spot on with all of it. There, There is a huge amount of focus on technology and what you just described was IT as a business or, or cybersecurity as a business problem, not necessarily as a technology problem. And uh, the uh, description of risk to the stakeholders, you know, often uh, I think some of us in the cybersecurity business are guilty of it where we're speaking a language that they're not going to understand. And so inherently they tune out of the conversation and then having that culture of cybersecurity and understanding it, not as a cost center, but it can also potentially be a revenue center. I mean, if you look at some of the, the ways in which uh, let's just pick on IAM, the way you can implement it uh, and manage identities, uh, especially if you're doing it on a customer facing side can lend itself to a lot of analytics and buying patterns that might not otherwise be readily decipherable. So it's not just a cost center. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, and I, I've always been a big proponent, for example. So if you are in a business that potentially is selling their services, their products, I've always been in, in sort of embedding myself in the business development side of, of you know, um, work. And I always provide, for for example, for in the current business, I provide cybersecurity slides and what we do to the business developers. So when they talk into our potential clients, we highlight how security is important to us. So their customer data is safe with us. How do you dif how we differentiate amongst our competitors to make sure that we have a potentially higher chance of winning that business because they're going to be safe with us. So. When, when you're going into an organization, Marius, and looking at their cybersecurity program and really beefing it up to a high-performance program, what are the elements? What needs to be done? You mentioned risk as a, a foundational issue, the assessment of it. Is there any practical guidance on how to go about it? And I'll tell you why I asked the question. So we know there's quantitative methods out there like FAIR that allow you yeah. to quantify it. But for a lot of companies, it may not be an affordable mechanism by which to go down. Fair consulting is expensive. Those are big projects. Whereas if you're a 30 person or a 50 person organization, you might be like, uh, no, I can't afford that. So how, how do I go about assessing? Let's start there with risk and then take us through the rest of the elements here. I think first and foremost, you have to sort of, 
assess and engage sort of within within an organization what's the risk appetite what, what do we working with because depends where you end up if you end up in speedy tech house they're normally going to be more acceptance of risk so find the find the balance where is the limit i always i'm a big proponent of you first starting to qualitate sort of do qualitative risk analysis or you do for for example matrix five by five and you and you qualitate all your risks so based on quality the top risks then you can do a quantitative analysis of you know analyzing how much will it cost to mitigate them and whether that cost you know exceeds the potential damage that that, that risk might have to your organization so you start you start sort of there you're building the picture because the, the thing is sometimes people forget you know cybersecurity is not is no one department within business that is looking only at IT problems, as we just discussed. It's a business problem. So normally, I would go in an organization and have a have a, essentially have a meeting with every key stakeholder, get their opinion of potential risks that they their department is facing with, coupled that with you know IT, whether it's finance, HR, they all have systems that they're going to be working with that has potential risks. So what do they are afraid of what what makes them keep keep them keeps them up at night essentially and put that all in the risk register and then you essentially you create a, a structures within it so normally for example in, in my organization i always start with you you have a cybersecurity risk register and then you embed that to enterprise risk management where all the risks come together and then we have a sort of risk co committee where we discuss the next steps based on the most prominent you know risks what needs to go in the program what we can live with for now the the key point i want to point out sometimes and I, i'll point this i just been to about a month ago there was a cybersecurity conference called infosec in london okay. and one of the vendors they had their their big slogan was end cyber risk and i was like you can never end cyber risk you can never wash your hands and walk off and that's why I always say to some some people, you you can close the risk, but you can never stop monitoring the risk because the the closing of risk or risk assessment is the point in time of the risk that's currently here. With changing threat landscape, changing what you're doing in your environment, that risk can go up and down. So it needs to be monitored all the time throughout its life cycle. Yeah, and and when you're talking risks, I, I think there's also an, an element of there of execution from the bad actors i mean how much of the risks are exploitable you know yeah. in, in the organization right because there might be valid risks but the, if they're not exploitable that's fantastic i although i can't say that 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 i've run across that too often uh but it, yeah. it's a factor there but you do need to look at that threat landscape and then assess the priority of the risk. Do you think uh, is that a good approach to doing it? Uh... Yeah, because obviously you know there there are there are few ways that you look at it. You look from asset perspective, so you have obviously critical assets. Because risk is not is not the same risk if you have a, a, a risk that is on your crown jewels or on someone or on say on receptionist laptop. Okay. It's a very yep. big difference because because the receptionist laptop risk is not going to interfere potentially with your business operations. If, if, if you have, obviously, you know, layered defense, but there is obviously the, the assets, the data as well, data classification and the data importance to your organization. 
But I think it it, it all goes down down to that you know crown jewels and and what is the main risk that will stop your business operations. I think the one thing that I'm seeing there's a there's a slightly changing emphasis now within the businesses. So we stop going to thinking about 100% security protection because we will never achieve that. Yeah, there's that's a lot impossible. of emphasis. Yeah, that's impossible. And now we're going towards securing enough that the threat actor goes to the next one. And also, should the disruption happen, there's a lot of emphasis now on business resilience. So should something bad happen, can we restore operations within five, 10 minutes to, to limit the disruption? Because inevitably, something will going to happen at some point. Those That's uh, a fundamental principle for defense in depth which unfortunately yeah. is not talked about enough in the literature. When we read the literature, a lot of it is around the tech and uh, the shiny new toy that's out there and what it's capable yeah, of doing. Exactly. But, but uh, not necessarily how that toy needs to be integrated into a defensive framework to actually create a viable uh, safety net, if you will, to do exactly what you're stating, slow the progress down and, and, and do some kind of a containment and, and process and, and have that resilience. So when you, what do you say to, th there's a couple things that come to mind and I'd just love to get your feedback on them um, to the executive who says, look, fundamentally we can't get to 100% cybersecurity. So you know what? Why don't I just minimize my spend and I'm going to overload myself on cyber liability coverage should something bad happen uh, and, and make sure that there's a financial backstop to the losses. Uh, also, um, you know, I might, um, we, we're moving to the cloud and everything's in the cloud. So that's, you know, this now becomes Amazon's problem or it becomes Oracle's problem or it becomes Microsoft's problem. So why should I increase my budget or even make an attempt at uh, going to a higher performance level of cybersecurity when we've admitted that it's not possible to secure the environment to 100%? Yeah, it's not possible, but it goes back to it goes down to a narrative as this. I, again, it, it goes it depends on the business, but every every business needs to make profit, and normally you are serving your customers. So your your business keep kept that that is being breached over and over again through their lack of defenses. You know liability will not cover you against regulatory requirements and compliance. Sometimes, especially, it depends on what frameworks you you work with. So, for example, in the UK, if you are financial services, you have FCA requirements. If you process card data, PCI, you can't get away from that. Secondly, obviously. We're talking about some things like reputational damage is very hard to quantify, but what you can quantify is the potential risk of onboarding new clients, losing potential client, current clients, and losing the the support and trust within your clients that you know the risk that you are walking into, you know, and potentially losing business. You can definitely quantify that on on the potential, you know under investment in cybersecurity, as well as, you know, I just mentioned, you know, talking about business development and how we stand out in front of, you know, amongst our competitors as being this, the most secure one that they should go with us and protecting their customer data. 
you know, there's big fines happening for that as well. So you, you can't just cover yourself with liability up to your neck and think everything's going to be fine. I love it. You said it, not I. Maybe people will believe you, Marius, because <laughs> there's a lot of that going it. around. Uh, that there's a lot of, especially when it comes to cloud security, there's a, a a lot of decision makers who are under the misguidance that that is Amazon's problem or Microsoft's problem or Microsoft's problem. It's not our problem once we move to the cloud. Um, well, yeah, that, that's a, that's another question. You know, uh, it's yeah. I think we're in security. We're getting better. There's probably some some senior leadership like CIOs or, or board still don't understand the shared responsibility model, and and you know that that's again potentially a learning curve to to you know understanding them. It depends where you go, whether your investment is is whether it's infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service, and and where your responsibilities lie, but you can't just say, oh, we're going to migrate from on-premise to the cloud and, and, and Microsoft, we're going to cover all, all our problems. That, well, you're absolutely right, but believe it or not, there is a lot of that going around. Oh, I'm sure it is. I, you know, I've heard it myself in different conferences where people, you know, get shocked where you actually talk about, you know, who's responsible for what, you know, and yeah. They think, oh, we go into the cloud, it costs so much, they're going to do all of it for us. But no, it doesn't work like that. Well, you just look at the amount of data that's been stolen out of Amazon S3 buckets. I mean, just look at all that, right? How did that happen if Amazon's responsible for it? You know, Amazon's responsible for the platform, the infrastructure. They're not responsible for your data and how you've configured access to it. So maybe read the fine print, people. That's that's oh, yeah. all I can say. That's what I can say to that. But let's get into continuing building a, a, a program. You know, there is a reference to the pyramid of pain. Let's start there and then let's move into the MITRE attack framework. And let's kind of do this as like cybersecurity for dummies. So assume that people need to understand the basics. Marius, I know your level of understanding is very deep. But how do they connect these dots from the pyramid of pain to the MITRE attack framework to threat intel to building or buying an effective SOC? So maybe they can't build one internally, but if they're going to go outside to an MSSP and buy SOC as a service, they still have to ask a lot of intelligent questions and do a lot of assessing as to how all this yeah. fits together. Yeah, that ties, what, what, ties what, in well. No, I'm just going to say that ties in well to the paper. I'm, I'm, I'm currently writing a paper about how to build effective SOC, essentially using MITRE ATT&CK. So firstly, Pyramid of Pain, is, it's, it's, it's a concept been sort of developed over the last few years. But I think the, the key point to mention is if we look at sort of legacy systems like firewalls and AVs, yep. all the viruses, we used to detect them based on their hash value. So something like if you take a virus... There is a there is a program or something like you can just spit out a hash. Some something like MD5, people might have heard of it, or SHA1. Yeah. But it detects it essentially detects a fingerprint of that virus. So in in the older days, you know, firewalls or or even antivirus sort of software, they used to create a fingerprints for those viruses, how you can block them and detect them. And that would but be the time Correct. Yeah, but as the times moves on, obviously you have to understand that how these hash values work. Because if you if you ever, ever go into any program and you put in um, 
you can put in the say there's examples of you put in a Shakespeare text. If I change one comma, the whole hash value changes, and it's always you know variable input, same length output, but it's completely different just with one exclamation mark, one space. Therefore, obviously, threat actors became very savvy. So you can change one character in your virus, and that virus is no longer detected in your antivirus until it's obviously been detected by the by the company who creates the signatures, and obviously, and so on and so forth. So we're moving up the up the pyramid. So started with the hash values, then they we used to track IP addresses, domain names, where they do their command and co- command and control communication networks for botnets and things like that. But as we, they are called sort of trivial values who are very easy to change for threat actors. You can you can buy viruses now on the, on the black marketplaces. You can create new IP addresses with a click of a button. It's very easy. So these are very hard to detect. So we move it up the pyramid of pain to the top where we start tracking threat actor behaviors. Because behaviors and the procedures and techniques that they use it's very much harder to change because we built up sort of historical map through MITRE ATT&CK of what threat actor groups use as their tactics, techniques, and that's all plotted onto MITRE essentially um, graph that I think it has, it, it sort of replaced, if people remember, Cyber Kill Chain used to be sort of a military right. step program, how, how somebody would do this cyber or military operations. So now it moved into MITRE ATT&CK, which is similar. And I think it went from instead of like nine steps now, I think it's like 12 steps where it talks about what did they do prior to engagement, during engagement and post engagement sort of their activities. So we can track now threat actors based on the on the profile, for example, something like a Conti group. There is, there is so much evidence and threat intelligence to say that what normally techniques do they use? And Normally, through what I will say always to people, if you want to leverage MITRE ATT&CK, you really have to invest in threat intelligence and do the initial research. Because normally, you can gather enough information about threat actor groups that I always say, depends on the organization, but say you pick up an organization that works in UK in financial services, you can find okay. enough information that which threat actor groups historically have often attacked financial services within the UK and you can map these threat actors on the matrix, and then you discover what te- tactics, techniques they use, and then you can build and layer the, your defenses from that, essentially. Why is it, so MITRE ATT&CK has captured the tactics and techniques bad actors use. Why is it then on when you uh, many people watch the news and they see a three-letter agency uh, describe an attack or whatnot, but they always say, well, we're not going to reveal the tactic, techniques, and procedures. What's the big, why is it a big secret if MITRE attacks already captured? So, I don't so think it's a big secret. I, I think it's just, if, you, if we're talking on sort of news level, normally people will not understand the techniques. And secondly, I think the, the probably the bigger picture is nowadays is it becomes so much intertwined between threat actors and their groups that it's very hard to do any sort of level with confidence, any attribution. Because the, the new threat actor groups keep coming and rising and there's, there's loads of them in Russia, China, North Korea. So, um, and they always try to mimic each other. So sometimes to throw you off your scent, you know, they will put in some Cyrillic 
uh, into their viruses to, to think that, you know, it's Russians where it's actually Chinese and things like that. So there are people who actually do that for their work, you know, they're forensic experts, uh, you know, researchers who actually sift through lines of code and try and understand those behaviors. And that's where we get normally those reports where we get the behaviors that they're doing, the tools that they're using. There's a, there's a bunch of things that we can do, not only from behavior wise, but from tooling mapping to, to our data mapping of what data we need to have in our security, but incident and event management platform, and then how to create uh, effective analytics to detect that, you know, and, and MITRE attack, I think is so, so useful. And so, you know, there's so many things that you can do because it's not only from defensive side, you, you can build your defenses using MITRE attack, or you can do red teaming emulation exercises to test those defenses and evaluate. You can also then layer deception technologies where you create a dwell time for threat actors to actually gather the, the techniques and tactics and the steps that they use in your environment, you know, to potentially delay them and, and drop them off their scent, you know, where, where your crown jewels are. So there's a lot of potential scenarios. And I saw even there's a few papers published that people use MITRE attack for, you know, malicious file detection. Uh, there's, there's potential mappings into risk frameworks, how to, how to, you know, solve risk with MITRE attack. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's very, very good. So it, it, it sounds, for someone to navigate the MITRE attack framework, what is the best way to do it? From what you described, there is tremendous uses, a lot of information up there. It might be overwhelming. Are there tools that allow you to navigate it with a degree of simplicity? And Yeah, yeah. I would say this. You, obviously, you have to start somewhere. So I, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent because I use a lot of my tech in sort of defensive side. So I developed sort of my, the paper that I'm writing is based on a sort of continuous cycle of framework. So you start with, and as I say, you don't have to use some um, fancy tooling. You can do a lot of research for Google. So define three actors that are important for you to track for your organization based on the industry, based on your location, geographical, and the business that your company is doing. So you can detect, start with, say, five to ten three actors. Then you can use MITRE Navigator tool that's free in, in their, in their, on their website, and you can map all of these three actors based on their techniques and tactics. Then what I would normally do, because in, in Navigator, you can create layers. So each okay. threat actor, you create one layer from each threat actor. So say you have three, seven threat actors, you create seven layers, and then the eighth layer, you can create a layer from layers. So each layer, each technique, you attribute a score of one. So the last layer, you combine the score and you put A plus B plus C from all the layers. Yep. And then you have a, essentially a heat map, which shows which techniques has the most matches between those seven threat actor groups. So that's your prioritized technique map. Okay. Then you map those techniques to the data sources and data components that you need to ingest in your security incident and event management platform to be able to detect so that's the guide on what logs to, because I'll tell you, there's a lot of, uh, in the SIM world, there's a lot of usage. We want to ingest all your logs or send us everything. And yeah. what you're describing is a much more refined and practical approach. You don't need everything. You need the critical things to start with. Yeah. And especially because you, you, you map, because there's a two mapping system. So you map first to data sources 
and then data components within the sources. So you have data source, say it's Active Directory, but for that technique, you might only need sign-ins and logouts or specific. So you can pinpoint a specific data component of that source, because we know nowadays, most of the themes gone into the cloud and they're obviously yep. based on, on ingestion costs. So you can yep. get a prioritized, uh, you know, ingestion, ingestion based model. So once you map that, each normally within MITRE attack, each technique has a section of how to build your analytic rules to detect that technique as well. So based on whatever you're using, whether it's Splunk, there is a normally an example of query language or how to structure a query language, whether you use Azure Sentinel, it's custom query language, how to detect those techniques. So once you build a detection, the last point normally I put in my framework is depending obviously on the company and their budget spend, but nowadays you can get quite cheap, relatively cheap, some of the deception technologies. So we can put something like, for example, even if you're using stuff like uh, Defender for Endpoint, nowadays you can put fake admin credentials and you can create alarms on it. So whenever that credential is being touched, you obviously you know you are compromised because that, that that credential is fake and it's not being used by any machine or any person. So you can create sort of fake loopholes, fake VPN login points, even a fake virtual machine sometimes. Virtual machine to stand up is is, is not that trivial. expensive. Yeah. Yeah, it's trivial. So you can create a, a mimicking sort of a crown jewels virtual machine and then again create a lot of bells and whistles around it. So that sort of creates a, a cycle. So you first do threat intelligence, you map it to threat us to techniques, data sources, analytics, and then you kind of, I always have a kind of a true sort of two pronged spit out. So you either detect and create analytics for specific actors, but some of the ones, the really, really important, you push them to your security program. So you don't always want just to detect, but the really, really risky and important ones, you put them in a program and you build mitigations for it. Yep. So some of them will be detected, some of them will be mitigated, and then it goes deception technologies, because deception technologies, again, feed into your threat intelligence cycle, and then you keep doing research and you can repeat that cycle, rinse and repeat, whether you discover new techniques and tactics and you keep going round and round because you always want to have a timely visual of your defenses because obviously threat actors will change the importance change. You might expand to different geographies where you might need to add new threat actors and things like that. So you have to stay on top of all the threats that are coming in. That necessitates very good access to threat intel of some kind is yeah. without that. So now is there, are there um, systems out there that are not so expensive or open source threat intel uh, that companies can leverage that maybe, you know, that the enterprise tools might be out uh too expensive. Let's just leave it at that for a lot of organizations to. Yeah, to work for. you know, as I, as I say, so you can normally, as I say to people, start easy. Start with Google. There are enough reports about fractals. Something like Verizon prepares every year. There's there's specific cybersecurity organizations that put their reports out on fractals, and you know, there's things like you can start. Uh, there are organizations 
that share a lot of information. Even MITRE has a lot of information about tractors and, and sort of their their roadmaps of what they're doing. And then you start obviously building as it matures. You can start onboarding potential tools. You know, you can even start something simple like I have built before. You know, some things like um, sticks or taxi servers where you can onboard some of the you know threat intelligence. Obviously, some of these as well you can't ingest everything. It still needs a manual overview to make sure that it aligns to your organization needs. But then you start escalating it. There are specific organizations that do specific threat intelligence. There are specific threat intelligence centers like um, ISACs. So for example, there are ISACs that are dedicated for specific industries. So there is ISAC for financial services, for automotive. Some of them might be costly, but then again, I think they, they price their costings based on the company size. So if you're a relatively small organization, the cost will be quite lower than, than if you're a large organization. But then there are also tools developing. So obviously we know Israelis are always great at, at you know, building a new tooling. So uh, I think it's called Iron Dome. There is an organization that I think is bridging the gap because the one problem I always discovered is that post breaches, we hear about the breaches, but normally, either because of regulatory requirements or because of, you know, potential fines or costs involved, we never hear the details about the breaches. Sometimes we hear about five, six years down the line when it's already a long time ago, but we rarely, rarely hear, you know, the actual tactics that they've been used breach, say, that happened last week. But there are organizations like, I think it's called Iron Dome. So they have a platform where they connect all their clients and clients can share with all of their customers breach details so you get specific breach details you just have anonymized company so all you have is the sector and the and the region and then you have a details about threat actor that what they used what tactics what tools they used and it's shared within the customer network that's uh that's brilliant actually uh, you know to have that because that, and that's a very um practical approach to building a great sock in a defensive posture. And I would assume that you're also including in, in those special threats where you're building a program, that's where source coming into play, where you're having automated mitigation approaches for really critical. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed. You know, it's always based on the use cases because the thing is every sock will have a different business context. You know, we, we, we everyone's that, for example, you know, Oh, impossible travel alerts. But you know, does anybody get to the bottom of root cause of why it's happening? So you know, it's specific. For example, we have say developers that work in in Belarus, yeah. But if they yeah. if if they try to log in from Belarus, I have conditional access policies that you can't log in from Belarus. So don't, they normally have to use VPN. Let's say VPN from France. So sometimes you will get a login from Belarus, and within two minutes there's a login from France because they forgot to turn on the VPN. But unless you know the business context, you, you think that something might be dangerous. But built on the business context, you can provide automation rules that say, this is okay, but if there's any other scenario, ring alarm bells. So it's about, you know, and I always say to people as well, you can start your program even in small organizations. Like if you leverage some of the like tooling, that's why I quite like, you know, if you talk about clouds as well, I think Microsoft yeah. is, is doing great in terms of cloud security. GCP is great because of their networking capabilities and out of the box, you know, 
whole world networking and I, AWS is very good with their machines and stuff. But what I like Microsoft, so for example, you can build stuff like, you know, for example, you started with one analyst and the analyst only works nine to five. What happens if an incident happens at six? So in Defender, you can pre-built automation that says, if that laptop has been detected with a virus at 6 p.m., isolate the machine from network, create a, an investigation package with all the logs and alerts, and leave it there. Analyst comes in the next day at 9 a.m., he can do his investigation, and then based on the outcome, put the machine back into the network or not. But you contained with automation without potentially spreading to the environment. Do you see with... AI and the scenario that you just described, it seems like it would be ripe for machine learning or a lot of these scenarios would be ripe for machine learning. Uh, a place where we get to a humanless sock. I don't think we'll ever get to the humanless sock, but if you look at the traditional sock, I think AI has a potential, has a chance to get rid of level ones, maybe some of the level twos. But when we go to level three, I think SOC will always struggle to understand the, the real business context and, and all the things that's happening within the business. And that's why normally it goes through the chain and up the escalation to level three is when something serious happens and need to make, sometimes even need to make business case determinations where, you know, can you plug off the your crown jewels and turn them off when something serious happens, you know, and, and, and somebody needs to make a decision whether, you know, what's the risk versus, you know, the potential losses of the costs, you know, and AI would never be able to do that because you still need to get a sign off from someone. So, but yeah, I think it's definitely has a potential to replace the, the low level, the, the sort of the first layer of stuff that happens within your SOC and reduce the noise because, you know, sometimes, and we just discussed SOCs, pe people tend to, you know, until they build enough knowledge and maturity they turn on all of the logs, all of the alerts, and then it just goes 150 yeah. alerts through, during the day, trying to investigate all of them. It obviously creates a lot of noise, creates a lot of pressure, because sometimes as well, and I've seen that before, due to an experience sometimes, for example, security professionals, sometimes they report to the boards, oh, how many incidents we solved and how many closed. That creates unnecessary pressure for analysts to keep closing loads of incidents. But that does that metric is useless in my opinion, because the more incidents you have does not mean anything good. You should have less incidents because that's how you create maturity in your organization instead of how many you solve and, and what's your time to respond and things like that. Brilliant. I, I hope people take that away from this uh, discussion as well. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, <laughs> what about offense? Is there What's the role of offense or is there a role of offense in... Uh... Yeah, I think there's always a role for offense. You know, I've always been a big proponent of um, sort of bridging um, automated office with offense with manual offense. So, you know, I just kind of mentioned as well, when you start building your SOC, there are there are ways you, where you can test your detections because obviously you just created a loads of analytic rules, but how do you know that they're going to detect that threat until the threat is here? Right. So you can create a hypothetical red emulation test scenarios where you can actually try and trip those, you know, alarms and see what's going to happen. And, and that's how you test the effectiveness of the SOC. Obviously, there are, again, based on organization maturity, you have organizations that have red teams and have individuals that continuously create hypotheses 
and test you know your defensive environment and then you go into purple teaming where red and blue work hand in hand to test and enhance your defenses but then you have tools that are bridging that gap you have tools like miter itself built a attack iq tool you have um you know i've used before simulate tooling that the, the tooling is called breach and attack simulation so again they have a great mitre attack mappings where you can test specific techniques within your mitre attack framework they have threat intelligence feeds that come into your platform and they are quite good because for example you have a threat intelligence feed that says something is being exploited in the wild and within normally within 24 to 48 hours they have an inbuilt test scenario to test in your environment whether that is exploited because i wanted to put that into our vulnerability management program because okay. Normally, vulnerability management program is very flawed because organizations run into 20, 30, 40, 50,000 vulnerabilities, and you can never, ever patch them all. But having the yeah. timely information to know whether that vulnerability is on a crown jewel, whether it's behind any layered defense, and whether it's actually being ex can be exploited by threat actors, and what's the level of sophistication needed to exploit that, vulnerability gives you a timely sort of action to know whether to patch it or you can accept the risk and and go into your normal patching cycle when it's patched whether it's you know based on slas but sometimes you need to escalate that if something serious like move it happens then with a built move it scenario you can test in your environment and see it's exploitable we we raise a, an emergency patch and do it today and we can sleep well at night What do you think AI is going to do for the bad actor side of the house? Do you think, are we going to be able to keep up with what's going on there? What's going to happen here? What's your magical future crystal ball say? <laughs> well, you know, threat actors, obviously, they can leverage AI to create more sophisticated attack methods, attack scripts, viruses, obviously, you know, because... Every tool has a way to, to for it to bypass. You know, they can build a, a potentially, you know, attacks that bypasses your EDR or bypasses your firewalls and things like that. But the key point I think is here, and and I've been having a discussion with the people before. We keep talking about layered defense, but people still don't really understand what it means because we have separate systems that might think might we might think that acts as layers but they're not layers because unless they are working together they're not a layer defense they're just separate systems that does separate things but how do we work and then that's where kind of i've been working with a few interesting tools where how do you connect for example your runtime runtime protection systems with your WAFs, with your firewalls, that should something happen in the runtime, how can automatically you spit out a signal to firewall saying block that, block there, block here, and create a cohesive system that talks, like Microsoft is working well to combine the Defender for Cloud, Defender for Endpoints into Azure Sentinel, but there's obviously more systems you plug in. How do you plug into that your static code analysis, dynamic code analysis, software composition analysis, and all of the software development coding, how do you email security protection, how do you all combine between and intertwine layers where one thing fires, 
it talks to all of them. So it's, it, it, it potentially stops it going through any other window or, or door. And that's the real true of, you know, defensive sort of layer where you, they work together. Cause I always say, for example, you know, there's some companies creating some amazing tools, but I always say to, when I, when, when somebody, you know, pitches their tool, I said, how do you integrate with my seam, with my EDR, with all of this? Because I don't want to have another window to look at. And if it's not cohesively integrated with my defense, it's just another window to look at where, you know, I'm just going to overwhelm my people. And I don't want them to look at 10 windows. I want everything to be integrated in my seam so they can they can do all the work from one plane of glass. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Now... That being said, there's a statistic out there that 97% of all breaches are due to misconfiguration. Yeah. I don't know how accurate that is, but I've read it in multiple rags. So I'm assuming whether that number is 94, 93, it's 90 plus percent. Uh, uh, what can we do to implement processes that really look out for those misconfigurations and get those cleaned up because that again comes down to a business problem that's something that's on us that we should be able to cue quality check and and yeah yeah I, I think there's a few things come into play into that the more we go into agile development obviously and devops and devsecops everything is is predetermined towards you know we build quick we do everything's quick but we don't like doing documentation and sometimes you need to, you know, when you're starting out, you need to have a proper governance in place. You know, if you're building something in the cloud, you need to have standards. What images do you use? What images are allowed? How do you, what's your standard to building a virtual machine? Because the problem is in, when you have 10 developers building 10 different virtual machines, their potential security in their head is completely different to some, to, to someone else. Yep. And that's where misconfigurations happens. So I'm a big proponent of creating something like, you know, I, I've built, I've worked in organizations where we create something like cloud adoption model. And we have a prescribed, prescribed sort of flow of what you happens. How do you build virtual machine? How do you build firewall? How do you build Docker container? And what images are allowed in our sort of repository? You create um, a unified approach because i always say to people policies procedures and all of this documentation reduces the the potential human error because you have a unified way how you do things in your organization and then you go into things like you know people when when people come sort of new into cloud they do a lot of things through gui when you go to enterprise nobody does cloud building through gui everything happens through infrastructure as code so if you do a properly infrastructure through code you can have things like configuration drift detection. So as long as you build built-in scenarios and alarms where you detect drift configuration changes, because you have your YAML files, so you describe how your infrastructure should look like. If anything through GUI goes into Amazon and changes one character in something in your virtual machine, the file within YAML that says that this how that machine should look like will spit, will give you an alarm because it's monitoring always saying what from the file what changed into live environment. And then you obviously the key point as well is in there. We just touched as well, uh, you know, 
IIM, identity access you know, management. It's people being over, over, you know, provisioned with too high permissions that can are able to do changes without, you know, change management. That's one thing as well. Loads of organizations fail at change management. You know, what's the process of, you know, where is pre-approved changes and where is the changes that create risk and who's approved those changes? You know, sometimes changes happen without approval and that's why they create misconfigurations and risk. So that goes into a whole of the cohesive thing that you need to think, you know, I've been, I've been, before I've been presenting on the clouds as well, talking about IAM, I always say to people, two of the hardest programs that I've ever had to work with and, and implement is IAM and DLP. So identity access management and data loss prevention is the hardest programs that you will ever work to implement because they, there's so many variables. For example, if you take simple things like Azure, Azure yep. has about 1,500 permissions. So when you use any out-of-the-box role, normally that role has about 100 or 150 permissions that are too much than they should have. And actually building custom roles to do the least privilege, almost nobody does that because it's a it's a very big, cumbersome work. But once you've done it once, it makes your life so much easier. But loads of people just use pre-built roles that are way over-permissioned. And, you know, you have to have a plan. You have to have a vision. How are you going to provision? Whether If you start doing giving roles through subscription, anything that's within the subscription, you obviously get, you inherit permissions down. So sometimes people, you obviously over-permission over people to have, you know, access to loads of resources when they shouldn't have. That's an excellent point. Uh, but as you also said, it's a ton of work to actually affect a, a major change there and, and go to the concept of least privilege or implement zero trust type approaches in, in that environment. It won't be a simple configuration change. <laughs> no, it won't be. Yeah. So we're at the last minutes here, uh, Marius. I wanted to make sure you had a platform to let our audience know about anything that you're working on that's going to be coming up that you want them to engage with you on. What The floor is yours to uh, let them know of, of whatever you think. No, the only thing I just wanted to mention was that, you know, I'm I'm very, you know, been heavily involved with doing my master's and, and all of the presentations so far, but I just wanted to, you know, I'm close to finishing my master's, so if people found intriguing uh, to find out more information about MITRE Attack and how to build effective security operation centers, that that my my work will be available soon, uh, so I can share with it if anyone wants to read through and, and get more acquainted with that. You know how to build effects, effective sort of tailored threat actor tailored defenses in your organizations. Then yeah, I can I can share that information anyone who wishes. I, that's fantastic. And how should they reach you? What's the best mechanism? The best mechanism is LinkedIn. Okay. My, my name, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Vice President of Cybersecurity for Global Financial Services. Fantastic. Well, you might get some hits there then. <laughs> so look out for it. <laughs> yeah. People might reach out to you, which would be great. Are you doing any talks or making any appearances? Are you speaking... At, at any of the cyber conferences coming up? Um, hopefully soon. You know, I've kind of been so involved with so many things now that, you know, I've been just writing my dissertation, uh, just done the CISP. So I was doing, uh, I'm doing mentoring classes. So I'll just try to find space. So my master's is finishing at the end of this month. 
So that will free up me some spaces that actually go and talk. I'm heavily involved with like um, various um, sort of leadership community events in here in, in over in the UK. So I'm part of uh, SANS uh, CISO networking events. We do a lot. Of, and then we have a couple of groups. So we have Cyber Kingdom, where is a lot of um, cybersecurity CISOs within the UK. There's a big uh, Israeli community in there. So I think we, we've done recently one event and we had a, a head of 8200 squadron. I don't know if you heard. So there's a cyber uh, cybersecurity sort of uh, military group in Israeli. There was very insightful information. Oh, from I was not aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 8200 squadron where, because in Israeli, for example, they have obviously military services. It's, it's You can't choose. 18, you have to go for two years. So obviously that's right. why some of the people that end up in 8200 squadron, they obviously work on cyber intelligence, cyber you know operations for two years. So when they leave at 20, they have this amazing skill set. And that's why there's so many cybersecurity startups happening in Israeli, because these people come with these extreme skill sets and they're fostering that environment where startup is supported so that's why we have some so many unicorns being built there. Understood. Well, uh, Marius, it's been brilliant having you here. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and, you know, uh, don't be a stranger. If you have something new to talk about, you know, reach out. We'd love to have you back. Will do. Thank you very much, Marius. Thank you. Thank you.